All right, good evening, everybody. I hope everybody's good. It's good to, it's good to see everybody. Um, uh, let's, uh, let's pray, and we will get started. And um, I'm going to kind of, if you saw the devotion that I posted, I think, last night, um, the beginning of this is going to kind of be sort of a, a brief review of that, and then we're going to kind of springboard off of the end of that and go into what I believe the Lord has for us tonight. But let's, um, let's pray before we get started. Um, Brother Buddy, would you pray for us? want to begin by saying that often in our in our Christian walk uh, um, that we we know what we should do I think most of us as we go through our, our Christian life in fact the, the longer we go through our Christian life we have fewer and fewer incidents where we just have no clue what to do um, now there there can still be some times where we still are kind of left warning aren't we Mike there still seems to be a lot of gray areas where we don't know what to do but but increasingly you know, as we study more and we learn more and we come to know the Lord more closely and understand His character and nature, we hopefully are growing in an understanding of what we should do in a lot of situations. And most likely when we see that the Bible is directing us to do something, um, I believe we probably have a deep desire to do it. At least there's a part of us that wants to. I mean, I know we still have our indwelling sin and we still battle uh, the flesh and our pursuit of obedience, but there is now awakened in us as newborn believers a desire to obey King Jesus. But at the same time, I think we often find ourselves, I would say, seemingly paralyzed and simply unable to do what we know to do and we really want to do. Um, if, if you've really analyzed your life or if you really are paying attention as you go through your day, I, I bet probably there's been times that you just feel kind of spiritually jammed up. Like you want to obey, you want to serve God. You, you might even have a good idea what to do, but it seems like you just can't muster it at the time. And I think there's many reasons for that paralysis that can kind of set in on us. Sometimes it's because of fear. Sometimes it's because of our indwelling sin that just wages war against us. Sometimes it's because of stress or busyness or depression or any number of things that can kind of dam up the flow of the stream of our compliance to God's commands. And we can see what we should be in Scripture and we can want to be that, but these things that we're talking about burden us down and they slow us down and we just become stagnant. So that's kind of the idea that we're starting off from tonight because I'll just say on the front end, we're living, I mean, the world's always been this way, but I think it's very obvious to all of us that are paying attention. Church, we're living in a time where we just cannot afford to be stagnant. That, that time has passed. Generations before, I know my life and I probably just about everybody else living um, or everybody else that's, that's here alive. I hope nobody's here dead. But um, if you're spiritually dead, hopefully that'll change tonight. But, you know, nobody else, I mean, you know, here um, has lived in a time that is more chaotic and more hectic and it's more obvious in our nation just how much we cannot afford as the people of God to be stagnant and be complacent and be supine about our faith. So, I believe... That's probably where a lot of us are tonight, actually. I think we're in a time where a lot of us probably know what to do to some degree. We have some biblical understanding of kind of what we should be in this time in our nation's history. And, and I believe we have a desire to do it, but we may struggle to actually know how to enact it, how to implicate it, how to get it out, how to live a, a meaningful kingdom life that makes an impact and serves our Lord right now. And I think that's probably where most believers in our nation are right now. And before we get to the answer to this problem, I think we probably need to narrow this conversation down and kind of provide a, a specific context to view it through, kind of a, a platform 
that we can observe what's laid out before us from. So, um, like I said, if you saw my devotion post yesterday, if you just came in, I w- I'm going to reference just a few things um, that I presented there and then kind of use that as a jumping off point. So, to begin with, we all know, obviously, that our nation is in what right now? Chaos. That, that is the word. It's in chaos. It's, you know... I, if you're like me, I've been praying over the last few days, and I've thought this before. When I think about the Holocaust of unborn babies that are murdered every year for money, and it's supposedly legal, I have prayed and said, God, this world does not make any sense. Everything's upside down. When I think about, you know, different political agendas and, you know, different things like, you know, the institution of the family and marriage and things like that that have been just totally um, bombarded and, and, and the bombardment has been endorsed by the, the government that is supposed to protect us from wickedness. I have like looked up to God before and just said, Lord, this, you got to come back pretty soon. This, this is, this thing is crazy. I don't know how much longer we can live like this, but right now, I've never lived in a time personally where there's more chaos. I'm not saying there's never been a time where there's more chaos. I'm sure that if you ask somebody that was alive during the Civil War, they would probably say that time was more chaotic. I'm sure if you ask a Christian in China, in certain parts of China today, or in certain parts of the world today, they would say, oh, no, that's nothing. It's way more chaotic for us right here. And I get that, but in our context, in the lifetime that we've lived and with the people that are in front of me, I don't know that we've lived in a time more chaotic. It might be as chaotic, but not more chaotic. And, and what we're going to say tonight, this isn't a political statement at all. It's just a statement about right and wrong. That's all it is. Um, so the question we must answer is this. Why are we seeing the anarchy and the chaos that is not just here, but growing in our country? It's not a question as to whether it's here or not. It's why is it here? That's the million-dollar question, as they would say. And the short answer is this. We're seeing this chaos today because it's just the natural extension of the chaos that we as a nation have sown for generations now. It's just a natural law that we're seeing played out before us. Doesn't the Bible tell us, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Doesn't nature tell us that when you sow a seed, you get back the same thing only multiplied times over again? Yes. So it shouldn't boggle our minds that we're seeing this. The answer to the question, why are we seeing it, is really, I would answer that question with another question. How could we ever expect not to see this? The way that we, as a nation, have run things, the way that we... To be honest with you, we're going to implicate the church in this before it's over with. The way that we as the church have responded to the way our nation's been heading for decades or generations. How could we ever expect not to see this happen? That's the real question. So, in Isaiah 5.20, to give us a biblical perspective on this, the Lord says to Israel, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Around the front end, I want to remind you that if you look um, throughout Jesus' um, conversation with the Pharisees, um, where he gives the seven woes to the Pharisees because of their hypocrisy, the word woe is it's really a pronouncement of judgment. It, it's, it's saying that woe or suffering or harm has come upon you because of this. Um, because we have sown chaos by causing evil, excuse me, by calling evil good and vice versa, because we have pronounced the darkness of lies to be enlightenment and we've called the light of truth closed-mindedness, we're seeing the fruit of what we've sown just multiply. When you claim that there is no God and instead make yourself out to be God by the way that you live, When you reject God's truth and embrace lies as your truth, what do you think is going to happen? You reap chaos and confusion. You have a culture that rejects marriage and family in exchange for rampant loneliness and promiscuity. 
You have looters burning down business, the businesses of hard-working, innocent people with seemingly no consequences. If you want to go burn down a building, go burn down a building. Nobody's going to arrest you. Nobody's going to do anything to you right now. Go ahead. But when the police show up, those who are sworn to bring order, what happens? They are summarily demonized. So the bad guys are seen as internet heroes, and they get away with basically murder. And the people that are supposed to restore order are made out to be criminals. You have 50-year-old men who think they're six-year-old girls, and not only does nobody think to get this person some help for what only a few years ago was obviously a certifiable mental illness, but if you don't wholeheartedly agree with this person's delusion, you're labeled a bigot. This is the world that we're living in, and we're reaping the fruit of the chaos we have sown. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. And what happened? But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's the world we live in. That's our context, unfortunately. Now, you may ask the question, when people are prone to do this, because this isn't new, is it? Is this a new behavior of mankind? Is it just now in the last 50 years, 100 years, 200 years or whatever that people started rejecting God as God and people started worshiping false idols and people started, um, you know, twisting the natural order of God's creation and perverting it in ways that are abominable and just unnatural? Is this the first time that we've seen this in human history? No. Ask Noah. No. Ask Lot. And you could ask his wife, but she was a pillar of salt when it was over with. No, this isn't the first time we've seen this. Ask any survivors of the Holocaust in Germany or ask anybody that survived Joseph Stalin's probably 10 million plus murder spree there. Ask people that have been through horrific acts of human depravity and they will tell you, no, this isn't the first time. So if this has been really the, the pulse of human behavior systematically throughout history, the question we have to ask is how in the world could God ever expect us to survive and ever expect the human race to make it even this long? Much less have joy, much less have society, much less thrive. Well, it's because God in His goodness has granted at least four restraints to help protect us. There may be more, but we're going to name at least four tonight. And these restraints, they protect us from evil, but not all evil. They're not perfect. They're not foolproof. They protect us, though, from utter evil. When I say utter evil, I mean the furthest extent to which man's depravity would go should God in His grace not restrain us and hold us back. Utter evil would make Adolf Hitler and anything he ever did look like a kid playing in the park. Utter evil, if you really want to know utter evil, hell. Utter evil will dwell in hell. God restrains utter evil. He restrains mankind from spiraling downward into utter evil. And he does it through at least four restraints. He gives us these restraints even as his enemies as a part of His common grace to mankind to save us from utter wickedness, from the greatest extent of our wickedness, so that we wouldn't destroy ourselves as a species. And by the way, that's that idea that we would destroy ourselves as a species, that's not just a Christian idea. Um, the late, in, in one sense, brilliant atheist uh, and physicist Stephen Hawking um, he, before his death, began to make the statement that mankind only had about 100 years left on this planet and we needed to try to find a way to live on other planets and kind of colonize the cosmos, so to speak, because if not, because of our natural tendencies, we would basically destroy each other and this planet. 
So this is a problem that not only believers can see, but even the natural world whose eyes have been darkened the truth, they can see this because it's played out in front of them all the time. So what are these restraints? First, just real quickly, God has given each of us a conscience. First restraint is a conscience. You and I innately know right from wrong. If you remember the first time you lied as a child and you kind of got called out on it, you remember that sense of, oh no, I've done something wrong. You remember that sense of having crossed some line. Or if you remember the first time you back-talked your, your mother or father, or the first time you stole something, even as small as a quarter from your friend's house or something when they weren't looking, and, and, and you knew in your heart that you had crossed some line that you should not cross, that's your conscience. In Romans 2, 14-15 tells us, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, meaning the written law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So we all have a conscience. But here's the problem. We as a nation, we're full, or excuse me, we are a nation full of people that have overridden our consciences time and time again. We saw the stop signs, and what did we do? We didn't slow down, we didn't tap the brakes, we sped through and did what we wanted to do, right? We call bad good and good bad, and we have dialed down the sounding alarm of our conscience until we no longer really hear it. It doesn't really register anymore. Secondly, God has given the family unit. And when I say family unit, I mean a man and a woman, a father and a mother living together in a marital relationship in the same home with their children. No spinoff from that. That's the family unit that God has given us. And while God is the architect, parents in this situation are the construction crew who establish the natural boundaries for good and bad within their children. God has given us a family unit as a means of generationally putting bumpers on the wickedness that is innately in the heart of every child. In Deuteronomy 11, the Lord said to Israel, You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in your house, and when you're walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. God has given us family to help restrain sinful people. But as a nation, we've pretty much destroyed the family unit, haven't we? We destroyed the family unit. Too many fathers are out of the home. And too many fathers who are home are regarded by the mom and the kids as nothing more than an idiot. And that is by design by our culture. If you watch, if you, I was talking with somebody about this the other day. If you watched TV shows, I hate to date myself here, but back in the black and white days, if you watched the Andy Griffith show, the father in the family in that TV show, what was he like? He was skilled. He was wise. He was typically kind. He was able. He wasn't an idiot. Scroll forward to the 80s and 90s, more than 90s and, and so on. The most popular sitcoms that were based on a family unit, what was the dad always painted as? The village idiot. It's a systematic undermining of the father's role in the family to raise the children. We've destroyed the family unit. And what's just as bad, if not worse, than the destruction of the family unit is the perversion of the traditional family unit where these days you might have a child who would presumably grow up with two dads or two moms. We've either shattered it or we've perverted it beyond all recognition. So we've done away with two restraints. The third restraint is government. And I know that's not a popular thing to say these days, but that's still the truth. God has granted the authority and agency specifically of law enforcement as a restraint against evil. 
We read in Romans 13, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for you. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Law enforcement and government is not perfect. We all know that at times there are evil components within that system. At times the whole system may seem evil, but it is a necessary evil. And the reason it's a necessary evil is because without God's gift of government, no society would thrive or even exist. It keeps us from spiraling down into the abyss of anarchy. Could you imagine, for those of us that have been to other countries like, say, Haiti or places like that, where there's, there's, there's a government, but all it really is, who's really the president of Haiti? A thug, Russell Kasson, that's right. I like, oh, know, right? Hey. You know, yeah. Uh, Russell, wherever you are, love you, buddy. Uh, we miss you. You're the only one loud as me and Chris. But, you know, there is no real government. There's people who are sitting in the place that they should be constituting government, but all they are is the latest thug with the most thugs under them. And then when some other thug gets a bunch more thugs, they overthrow them violently, and they start, you know, extorting money from people and all that kind of stuff. We, we don't live in that kind of country. We have still a government that, even though it may not be perfect, it does keep us from spiraling into utter anarchy. But now, we hear cries going out in the streets and on the tweets calling us to defund the police. So we're trying to throw away our third restraint. And at this point, it needs to be said that you and I, I'm talking about guys, us, in this church, we can't sit back and simply blame the world around us for this situation. I want you to really listen to what I'm going to say and don't misunderstand me. We have been guilty of the reasons for this chaos just as much as anybody else. I throw myself in that. Now, why do I say that? This is why. And you, you and me, were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I'm just as guilty for the chaos that America's in today as anybody that's walking around with a picket sign anywhere as any good cop, bad cop, mediocre cop, and so are you. Because before the cross, guess what I did? My conscience would sound off. You think I submitted to it? No, I did what you did. I suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. I flew by that stop sign, and I did what I wanted to do. Sin. My parents tried to raise me in a godly way. Do you think I was the perfect child? I might have looked like the perfect child on the outside, but in my heart it was just as black and just as wicked and just as lost and just as God-hating as anybody else has ever been born. And I may have never stood in the streets and said defund the police, but you know what? I have been just as rebellious against authority in my life as you have and anybody else. So we are all culpable here. But thankfully, the next verse goes on to say, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Like I said, you and I were just like the world because we were part of the world. We were wrongdoers who silenced our consciences and defied God's law and His safeguards and did what we really wanted to do. We sinned our heart out. The difference is this. The difference now between those of us sitting in this room, hopefully all of us sitting in this room, and the majority of the people outside this room that, that's buying into the chaos and the ensuing anarchy is this. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You were made a member of Christ's body. And you were saved by God's grace. And you were, as we just read, created... I would, I, would, I would have recreated. You were reborn into Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what are these good works? Well, that leads to the fourth and final restraint that we're going to talk about tonight that God has given as a gift to this world to help, it from the, to help save it from the depths of other wickedness. The fourth restraint that God has given this world to keep it from falling off the, the ragged edge of its depravity is the church. It's us. The buck stops here. This is it. We talked about four. We talked about how the first three are, are either gone, have been totally cast aside, or being threatened to be th thrown off the cliff as well. The church is the staple that's left holding the tarp down as the winds of the world blow and threaten to completely rip off all restraint and flood in the, the building of our lives, the building of our nation with the wickedness that will destroy us. And acting against a restraint against chaotic wickedness is part of the good works that you and I were redeemed for. Don't miss this. Listen, we're not sitting back saying, Oh, goodness. I wish Jesus would hurry up and come back so that I don't have to deal with this stuff. That's wrong. So many words that popped in my brain. The most gentle one I could think of was wrong. That's not why God saved you. That's not why God saved me. That's not why God broke into your life in your wickedness when you either knew you were a really bad person and you were going to bust hell wide open or maybe you were so deceived that you thought you and God were good and you didn't know that y'all had a problem until he broke in and said, no, I, you need to know that you need saving. So here I'm going to save you. The reason he did that was to glorify his great name. The reason he did that was to glorify the name of Christ. The reason he did that was so that you and I would function as the church of Jesus Christ, the very body of Christ, on this earth, following the direction of our head, Christ Jesus, and act as a love gift from our Father to a wicked world. It's really no different than everybody, anybody that's ever loved you. Listen to me a second. Do you know, think of everybody that's ever loved you. Your mom, your dad, your husband, your wife, your kids, whatever. Have you ever thought about the fact that every single ounce of love you've ever gotten from anybody is really nothing more, nothing less than God loving you through the conduit of a, of a person that he created? God gave me a wife because God loved me. And he decided to love me by pouring his love through the pipe of Melanie Means into my life. Now, it's not perfect. Every time you take a drink of it, you get a little taste of the pipe. But... It's still God loving us. I would say Melanie's, Melanie's pipe is cleaner than everybody else's. That's called self-preservation right there, Kyle. That's what that is. But that, that's, God has given each of us as a love gift to each other, Him loving us through the gift of others. 
That's the same way He's given the church to the world. It's His common grace. It's, his, it's a sign of His perfection in that He loves even His enemies enough to give the very body of Christ to protect them from the destruction that would come upon them without us being there. How dare we sit back and say, well, I just hope this kind of blows over before it hits me too bad. That's not what we're here for. We are here to stand against wickedness. And when I say wickedness, I don't necessarily mean a political party. I don't necessarily mean people who get out and, and protest for something that you and I may not personally understand or want to protest for or even agree with. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the wickedness that drives the human heart without the grace of God to the gates of hell and runs headlong into it. That's the wickedness. The wickedness of the world that fails to glorify the God of all creation who has given us life and breath and every good thing. We should stand against that if for nothing else we we know, we of all people know, that our King Jesus deserves for every human heart to love Him. Every human heart to obey Him. Every human heart to honor Him. We should be the ones that are proactive about this. Now, God has granted the church to the world as a purifying agent. The question would be, how do we, how do, we do this? How do we act as that restraint? Well, we're purifying agents. Um, I think it's probably well known... Uh, for anybody that does much biblical study, that sin and wickedness grows where? In the darkness. You are your best at sinning when you knew you wouldn't get caught. When you thought you might get caught, eh, you was just average. But when you knew you wouldn't get caught, I bet you were good at it. I was good at it when I knew I wouldn't get caught. Sin grows in darkness. John 3.20 says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Also, um, harmful infections grow and, 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 and cause damage where there's no purifying agent. The church is called to be both the light and the salt that exposes and purifies, excuse me, exposes and purifies the wickedness from a society. Jesus tells us, um, in Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. We must be salt and light. Biblically, just real quickly, what does that look like? Well, biblically, salt always refers or is most closely associated to our speech. How we talk, what we say, how we say it. Um, Colossians 4, 6 says this. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, if you don't understand what seasoned with salt actually looks like, well, look at the two parts of the verse that we can know what it looks like. He says, let your speech be gracious at the end that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Well, how should we answer? Truthfully, right? You, know, you owe no man nothing but what? The truth in love. So, gracious, truth, seasoned with salt. It all ties together. This is what I think that looks like. I think that means that you and I have a duty to go out into the world we live in and open our mouth and proactively speak truth to, into the lives of people that may not necessarily care to hear it. But our goal should not just be to make people accountable. Our goal shouldn't be to go in and just drive the knife in so that they, you know, stagger back and die and, you know, don't have anything to do with us. I think our goal should be that we see people come to know the grace of God's truth, to know the love of God's truth. Emily, there's a saying in India, and I'm probably going to butcher it a little bit, but it basically goes something like this. After you have cut a man's nose off, don't bother handing him a rose to smell. I think too often, and I'll speak for myself, I think too often in years past, I was really quick whenever somebody, I saw somebody living unrighteously, unjustly, or, or, or maybe even being heretical or blaspheming the truth and biblical, the, the, the gospel of the Bible. Maybe too quick 
to go in just kind of using the Bible as a hatchet, just hacking and beating and cutting and destroying, cutting the nose off somebody. Well, after you've done that, it's really hard to be gracious and compassionate and let them smell the sweet savor of the love of Christ. Our goal should be people who speak, who open our mouth and stop those who are staggering toward the slaughter, but we do it in a way that is tasteful, we do it in a way that's gracious, we do it in a way that's compassionate and echoes the love of Christ. You really think about it, that's a hard mark to hit. Nobody's ever been more confounding than Jesus. Nobody ever made sinners feel more loved and at the same time spoke more blisteringly about sin. I'm not real good at that yet, I don't think. I hope I'm getting better. And I think we all have to get better, but that's our goal. And if we don't do that, we become useless. Shining as lights refers to our actions. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We have to, by our lifestyle, do as Ephesians 5, 11 tells us to do and expose the unfruitful works of darkness. We have to expose it. How do we expose it? By our actions. We give the contrast. Why is it that you can walk into a room where the lights are off and it can be the messiest room or the cleanest room ever and you have no clue until you turn the light on? Is it because when you turned the light on you got out there and cleaned it up or did the light just contrast the picture that was already being shown? The light gives a contrast. The light overcomes darkness. The light gives no place for it to hide. You and I have to be a people who are zealous for good works, who are devoted to our King, who do every seemingly little thing in service to our Lord and for the good of others so that they can see that there's something different about the lives of these people who with their mouth claim to know the truth that will set men's souls free. And if we don't, we've abandoned our purpose. And as we said at the start of this, we can know that we have to be salt and light, and we can desire to be salt and light, but we may be seemingly at times unable to pull off the task of being salt and light. I don't know about you, I feel like I've been there a lot. I feel like there's a lot of times I want to be salt and light, I just don't know how to pull it off. Or if I might know how to pull it off... You ever know, you ever gone to a gas station and you felt like you just ought to witness to somebody today and you see this stranger over there and you think, I'm going to go tell that person about Jesus. And you don't do it? I'm the only one. Okay, all right. Y'all are brave. I like how, not to, not to narcissize this, but I like how, you know, sometimes, like all my buddies, like, like all, all y'all are my friends, but you know, the ones that pick on me, you know, because I pick on them worse. Kyle, Joseph, Brother Tony, Chris every now and then, anybody, Mike, anybody else that just wants to take a free shot at the fat, ugly guy. You know, everybody likes to pick at the idea like, you know, Brian will go up and he'll just talk to anybody. He ain't never met a stranger. Just go up and talk to anybody about Jesus anytime and all that kind of stuff. That may be true. But I guarantee you there have been far more times in my life that I have looked at somebody and I, the thought has crossed my mind, I should go talk to them about Jesus, and I did not than the times that I thought it, and I did. So speaking from personal experience, we can know what to do, and we can have a desire to do it, and we just don't seem to pull it off sometimes. Why is that? Well, we named a lot of reasons. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's economic pressure. Maybe it's slander or threats or... All sorts of things that can hinder us on our mission. The question is, how do we find freedom from these things that hinder us so that we can be the salt and light that we're called to be? I think very quickly, and getting very close to being through here, um, I think we find the answer in Romans 8, 31 and 39. If you've got your Bible, turn there with me. Talk a lot of, spoken a lot of Scripture here, but I want everybody to kind of see this with their eyes because I'm going to read kind of a not, a, not a real lengthy text, but there's a lot in there. I want you to see it. Romans 8, starting in verse 31. Paul's kind of at the crescendo of 
the midpoint of his letter to the Romans, probably the most awesome purely theological work I've ever been able to read. And he's taken us from being totally lost, all men locked under depravity, saved by faith alone, by God's grace alone. Yet, although we're saved, we still struggle with indwelling sin and, we, and, and, and we're sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit, but he calls us alongside to be, take an active role and, and, and work alongside him in surrendering the members of our body as, as slaves to righteousness where we used to surrender ourselves as, sla as slaves to unrighteousness. And then we realize that although we, we may want to do that, we still struggle in chapter 7 with indwelling sin and so that oftentimes we look at our lives and we say, the very thing I want to do, I don't seem to be able to do. And the thing I don't want to do, that seems to keep snagging me. And with my, with my heart and my mind, I serve the law of Christ. With my body, there's it, just a war going on between my spirit and my flesh. And wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, my Lord Jesus Christ. And then in the victory chapter, here in chapter 8, he says this. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or even famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, we have a mission. There's, in my lifetime, never been a more obvious call for the church to rise up and fulfill its mission. But, but in compassion and graciously at the same time, I want to say this, you know, when you take into account the, the, all the things swirling around us right now, the, 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 the long haul with this international pandemic, you know, all the economic ups and downs, all the political controversy, and now we've got the, the, the riots and the chaos and all these things. I don't think there's ever been a time, at least in my lifetime, where the church was more obviously being called to be the church. And I don't know that there's ever been a time that we felt more sapped of strength than right now. If you're like me, you wake up every morning and you're tired. Not because you didn't get to go to sleep on time, but because your brain races, trying to wrap itself around all these things. And all these things are heavy things. You know, if you live long enough, you understand there's just going to be good times and bad times, right? But typically in our life, we have maybe a, one or two major things going on and a bunch of little bitty things. Guys, we got, we got a bucket load of huge things. Parents are scared for the future of their children. Children are scared for the health of their elderly parents. People who live in cities are scared to go to sleep at night because they don't know if the lock on the door is going to hold back the mad mob that may lose their ever-loving mind and come and knock in their door, or, much, or, or worse, burn down the building they live in for seemingly no reason. There's seemingly a great amount of uncertainty in the days ahead of us. And human beings don't do well with change, and we don't do well with uncertainty. It saps the strength from us naturally. I say all that to prime the pump in your heart, hopefully, for this. Church, all we need is in Christ. And we say that all the time, but I want us to really think about it a minute. It is Christ 
who sends us the Holy Spirit, who empowers us, He sanctifies us, and He works in us the strongest when our wills are weak and fragile. It is Christ who intercedes for us and defends us when other voices rise up to accuse us and slander us. And it may be many voices. It may be people on a street. It may be people over social media. It may be Satan himself, the accuser of the brethren. It may even be your own heart. But when your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart because he knows all things. It's Christ who guarantees that even if the world kills us all, we will be resurrected from the grave, we will inherit all that He has, and we will enjoy all that He is forever in eternity. Guys, all we need is in Christ, because all we need is Christ. That's not a cliché. That is the foundation of the church. There is no other foundation laid on which we can build than on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? That is all we have and that's all we need and that's all we've ever needed and we need Him as much now as we've ever needed Him. But I think we can probably taste our need. We can taste how parched our souls are right now probably more than any other time. So, what does this mean? I think this is how we have to look at it. What we just described, this total abandon of ourself upon Christ, this is really what we're calling people to, isn't it? I mean, this is what we claim. Come and know Jesus. Come and, come and be built on Jesus. Don't build your life on sinking sand anymore. Build your life on the sure, sure foundation of Christ and you'll be eternally secure. Come and drink from Jesus and you'll never thirst. Come and eat from Jesus and you'll never go hungry come and be satisfied in Christ and you'll never need to go anywhere else isn't that what we say isn't that kind of what we're about yes that's what we're about so how can we be sure that we have speech full of grace of the gospel and seasoned with salt so that we'll know how to answer others and that we will actually give that answer to others I think this is what we do. We preach the salty gospel of Jesus Christ to ourselves daily. First person you should preach to every morning is you. Not the person you work with. Not your spouse. Not even your children. You. When you wake up, preach to yourself. Don't wait for the thoughts of the world to start bombarding your mind. You start preaching to yourself before your mind starts speaking to your heart without your supervision. You start preaching to yourself before the cell phone starts speaking to your heart. You start preaching to yourself before the news feed and before the media and before your co-workers or the radio station starts speaking to your heart and filling you with all this doubt and all this fear and all this turmoil and all this chaos and tying you up in knots. Preach to yourself what you know you should preach to others. Primarily because we're the only ones that we know can understand it and appreciate it and be edified by it. How do we make sure that we will shine as gospel lights by our actions? We commune with Jesus, who is the true light. We, for lack of a better way to put it, we get Him down in us every day so that He shines through. We, we study and we memorize and we meditate on His words until we abide in Him and until His words abide in us. We set our eyes on Jesus. We set our eyes on Jesus maybe in a way that we haven't done in a long time. We set our eyes on Jesus with the intent of having a heart revival personally. And we stare at Him until we see how much bigger and how much more powerful and how much more amazing He is until the entire world, if it were to turn against you personally all at one time, would seem to be a very small thing, comparatively speaking. Then we bank on His steadfast love and nothing else. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Father, you know us. You, you, you've known us before the foundation of the world. You know what we are and you know what we're not. And Father, you know that we're weak. You know that we are we're, we're, we're a people who struggle. Lord, we have, we have so many struggles that just sap the strength out of us, God. We, we have the, the daily battle with our own indwelling sin. We have the struggle against the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life that would try to draw our hearts away from you. We have the struggle against our adversary, Satan. And, and we live in a time, Father God, where that struggle seems to be just amplified to the point that, Father, just to be honest, we, we I think so often, we just, we don't know where to turn. We're not sure, if not sure what to do, we're not sure how to pull it off. And, uh, Father, we know that you've called us to be the body of Christ, and we don't want to disappoint our Lord Jesus. We want to be the body that he deserves us to be. We don't want to disappoint our head. We don't want to disappoint our Lord and our Master, and we don't want to disappoint you, our Father. So we're asking you, Lord, for grace to comprehend what our, our, our real calling is on this earth right now, Father God. Use us as a purifying agent. Use us as lights in a dark place to expose the unfruitful works of darkness around us. God, use us um, as, as a people to go out with, with speech that is gracious, seasoned with salt, full of truth, and help us give it to the world around us in love and with precision. And Father, I pray that you would just give us a new wind in our sails. You know, just fill us with your spirit, Father, like, like wind fills the sail of a ship. Point us in the right direction. Give us the power to, to, to troll in the direction you'd have us go, Father. And I pray that we would be, uh, we would be that city set up on a hill. Because, we, Father, we live in a dark world right now, and, and there's so much chaos in the valleys of darkness, and the world needs a lighthouse that points to you, and we ask that you would do that, God. Just help us be found faithful in that, Father. Give us revival in our hearts. Bring us to repentance where we need to repent, Father. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.